My name is Drew. If I haven't met you, I am one of the staff, elders, pastors here, and it is my privilege to bring to you the Word of God tonight. We will be looking at Psalm 116. Psalm 116. So if you have your Bibles, Psalms are right in the middle. Look for the big number 116. We'll look at the whole thing together. And as you turn there, if you're a Christian here tonight, then you have a conversion story, or we call it a testimony. It's a tale of how God saved you. The journey of you hearing the gospel, responding in faith, believing, becoming a Christian. How God moved you from darkness to light, from death to life. And we love to hear those stories, don't we? I love to hear them. We hear them during every baptism service where the baptism candidate comes up and shares their testimony of salvation. We hear them in members' meetings from time to time. Uh, Not just testimonies of salvation, but testimonies of what the Lord is doing in and through the life of our church. We hear them in community groups. Um, I love to ask every Christian I meet uh, early on what their testimony is. What is the story of their salvation? It's the most important thing about us. It's the most important fact in our life is how we came to know Jesus. So let's normalize that, church. Let's normalize telling our story and asking others to tell theirs. Well, tonight we're going to look at a psalm that is a testimony. This entire psalm is a a retelling of how the Lord saved this man, saved him from death, and then this man's response uh, to his deliverance, his response is part of his testimony, and that's instructive for us still today. It's a conversion story, and for all in Christ, this is our story. Psalm 116 is our psalm. So let's read it. I'll read it for us. Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then, I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, 
in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, I pray, deliver us. Deliver us now from ignorance, from apathy, from pride. Cause our eyes to see your salvation anew and rejoice again in who you are and what you have done in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I will break down this psalm into four stanzas for us as we walk through this psalmist's testimony of salvation. So first, our first stanza is a cry of the simple. The cry of the simple. We see this in verses 1 through 4. And the testimony starts out like a love letter. Sounds like a love letter. I love the Lord. And he does. He loves the Lord. And why does he love the Lord? Because he. Because he. In the first two verses we see that he loves the Lord because the Lord first loved him. The writer knows that the source of his love for the Lord and the source of his salvation comes from the same place. It comes from the Lord. His love and his salvation is the Lord. And our testimony is the same, isn't it? At least it should start that way. We love the Lord because he first loved us. Let us not forget how this works. He didn't conjure up this love in and of himself, and we don't conjure up love for the Lord in and of ourselves. But it is a response to who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. It's the same with this psalmist. And we love because he heard. And this psalmist loves because he heard. Christian, let's never get used to the fact that the God of the universe hears our prayers. Unlike the idols of Psalm 115, so if you look back in your Bibles at the previous psalm, Psalm 115, there's a whole section in there, we, we used to sing it from time to time, that the nation's gods, their idols, have ears but don't hear. Not the God of Psalm 116. Our God hears our prayer. And not only does he hear, doesn't just hear it in passing, like who's talking, what, what was that? He inclines his ear. He turns his ear like a father kneeling down to a child to come close. God is ready and willing to hear us. Saints, he hears your prayers. The prayers that you pray over and over again. The desperate prayer for wisdom. The prayer of an overwhelmed mom. The prayer of a parent with a wayward child. The lonely prayer. The prayer for healing. Saints, he hears. He hears those prayers. And so we keep crying out, we keep praying, like the psalmist in verse 2, as long as I live. We'll see a, a bunch of contrasts between living and dying, death and life in this psalm, and we see it here. As long as we have breath, we will pray, we will cry out to the Lord. Yes, we pray when we're in distress, that's good, and we do that because God wants us to. When we're in anguish and distress, God is using that distress, to improve your prayer life. He wants you to pray. But it's also right and good and sweet to pray from the mountaintops, to pray in seasons of victory and joy, to give God thanks and praise for those moments as well. But saints, never feel bad about praying. Never feel guilty that you're, oh, I'm praying, I'm coming to God again because I got problems. God wants to hear about your problems. God cares about your anguish. So never feel bad about praying in the valley. That's by design. This man was surrounded by death. 
Look at verse 3. The snares of death encompassed me. The pains of Sheol laid hold of me. This is, this is dark. This is serious. He was a goner. And such were all of us, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Just like this man, he was dead. But he called on the Lord. He called. I like that this word called is basically the same as proclaiming, just saying the name of the Lord. It's, it's not like he, he called a specific name, but called out to who God is. To declare the name of the Lord is to declare who God is and what he does. It's a, also a loud and public proclamation. This isn't, this isn't a whisper. This isn't a, uh, even a groan. This is a cry. It is a plea. There's power in that name. And when we cry out desperately, Lord, deliver my soul, the Lord is pleased to answer. And what a simple prayer. It wasn't a complex prayer. It wasn't wordy. He got right to the point. Lord, deliver my soul. The Lord honors simple prayers. We don't have to pray long, winded prayers, wordy prayers. Valley of Vision is a wonderful resource. But God doesn't need you to have that level of eloquence for him to hear your prayers. Praise God. Very few of us would ever have a prayer answered. So childlike innocence and humility coming to the Lord pleases the Lord, and he loves to answer it. And it's a, it's a desperate prayer. He, this, this man is in trouble. And the Lord loves to save the desperate. He only saves the desperate. He doesn't save those that don't think they need to be saved. He doesn't save the proud. He doesn't save the self-righteous. He, he saves those that know their need, that feel their need and cry out. So are you desperate here tonight for the Lord to answer a prayer? Good, good. The Lord can use that. And if you're not desperate, get desperate. <laughs> so when, like this man, we were surrounded by death and sin, our God heard our cry. But how do we know that he'll answer? How do we know that he'll answer that desperate cry? Well, because of who he is. So our second point is the cry of the desperate is heard on the basis of the character of the Savior. Verses 5 through 7. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Then what does he say? Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful or compassionate. He called on the name of the Lord, which is to say he was reminding himself who he was talking to. <laughs> to call on the name of the Lord is to remind yourself that I'm talking to God, and he is gracious, and he is merciful, and he is righteous. It sounds like Exodus 34, when God gives Moses his name. The Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. <laughs> That is who our God is. It isn't just what he does. God is those things. He is merciful. He is gracious. So we make our request based on God's character, not based on our earnestness, not based on our wording, again, but based on who he is. We come to him in that light. So do you know God of the Bible? Do you know what he's like? We call this theology. Theology. Kids, you in here? Say theology. theology. 
Theology, yes. Theology, the study of God. We talk about theology all the time here. We study God to know God because knowing God leads to trusting God and loving God and following God. So grow in your knowledge. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Grow in your knowledge of theology. Not just for knowledge's sake. We're not just trying to fill our minds with facts about God, about systematic theology, biblical theology, whatever else Alex was talking about earlier. But those things lead to devotion. That, that doctrine leads to following and loving and trusting more. So how can we grow th- this coming to these gatherings, coming to Lord's Supper gatherings, coming consistently on Sundays. That's primary. That is a primary means of grace that God has prescribed for the Christian, to come Sunday after Sunday to hear the word and to grow in your knowledge. I'm so excited for equipping classes. I know Alex is as well, and many of many of the leaders and teachers. Uh, once this building is done, we'll have a couple of equipping classes in here and in the, and in the main auditorium. That'll be a chance for us to grow in our knowledge of God which will then help us grow in our love and trust and following of God. And I love where he goes in verse 7. Knowing God leads to rest. This is a verse for weary and anxious saints. Christian, have you forgotten how to rest? Look at it. Return, O my soul, to your rest. He turns to talk to himself. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Can you repeat after me? Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Don't you feel better? I feel better. Let's do it. Let's do it. Memorize that verse and take it with you and bring it out in those times of anxious weariness. When we dwell on who our God is, we have no good reason to be afraid. Or to be anxious. When we remember what our God has done, we have every reason to believe and trust in who he is and what he will do. He hears, he knows, he cares, and he will deliver his saints. Like this man, once we were surrounded by death and sin, our God heard our cry and delivered us from death. So, point number three, or stanza number three, the condition of the saints in verses 8 through 11. So after he cries on the basis of God's character, a gracious and righteous God, what's the result? This psalm crescendos into verses 8 and 9 with a high note of deliverance. What is his condition after his cry? Well, in a word, alive. He's not dead. That's good. That's good news. To to juxtapose Psalm 115 and 116 again, we saw the, the idols that don't hear in Psalm 115. God hears in Psalm 116. The end of Psalm 115, verse, verse 17, it says, the dead don't praise you. In Psalm 116, the living do. So his condition is resurrection. It's the result of a desperate cry to a gracious and merciful God. He has been resurrected to live again. Body and soul. Do you see that? You've delivered my soul from death, but also my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. God delivers us, body and soul. This is a resurrection psalm. 
the psalmist of Israel that wrote all in our Psalter, they, they knew that God had a plan for their deaths. That even when they died, they wouldn't stay dead. This is our story. This is our psalm. In our journey through this testimony of Psalm 116, we've come to what I would say is the psalmist's baptism, a picture of him being buried and raised to walk in new life in the land of the living. You see that? Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Saints, we will walk. We won't limp. We won't crawl. We will walk in the land of the living. That phrase, land of the living, what are we to do with that? Well, in Ezekiel 32, we see the prophet use that to describe Canaan, the promised land. And that's true. That's right. But we, we see all through Scripture, a, a biblical theology of Canaan, of the promised land, should point us back, backwards and forwards, back to the garden, the garden of Eden, the land before death, where Adam and Eve walked before the Lord. I think it, this land of the living should remind us of the church, the place where the eternal people of God gather. So that's back, that's past, present, and then future. It should remind us and point us to heaven, our great hope of the new Jerusalem, the undying lands, a heavenly country where we will walk before the Lord forever. So Christian, are you living that resurrection life? Are you living like you're alive? I get a wonderful view, most gatherings, uh, to see all of you out there singing and participating in the gathering. And by the look of some of you, I'm not so sure that you're living that resurrection life. So let us eat, saints. Let us drink. Let us sing with merry hearts. Because yesterday we were dead, but now we're alive. Amen? So let's, let's talk to ourselves here. We see in verses 10 and 11, this is uh, kind of a, a pep talk that the psalmist gives to himself. I believed, and so I spoke. I believe, and I spoke. I believe, I said, verse 10 and 11. Sometimes simply holding fast to your confession, believing, and preaching to yourself, I said, is all you can do. And that's enough. Even when you are oppressed and everyone around you is a liar, you can keep believing, you can keep trusting, and you can keep singing. This is how the Apostle Paul read this psalm. <clears throat> In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, <clears throat> excuse me, we see the Apostle Paul quote verse 10 of our psalm in the light of resurrection hope because of suffering that he was enduring. So let me read for you, starting in verse 13. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. That's our psalm. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. This is a resurrection psalm. So what do we believe? That God raises the dead. And what do we speak? That God raises the dead. Can we say that? What do we believe? God raises the dead. What do we speak? God raises the dead. 
Church, that changes everything. Whatever distress you're going through right now, you have full access to the same resurrecting power that brought Jesus back from the dead. Do you believe that? And there is nothing, nothing, a good resurrection can't fix. (laughs) To quote our friend D.A. Carson, whatever you're going through, there's nothing a good resurrection can't fix. We need to live like resurrected people. That should change us. Like this man in Psalm 116, when we were surrounded by death and sin, and God heard our cry and delivered us from death, he delivered us to publicly proclaim his salvation. So our final point, the cup of salvation. Verses 12 to the end. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. When our youngest uh, was younger than he is now, we went through a phase where we made our own kombucha. Has everybody gone through that phase? Or are you still in that phase? We were in it. Okay, Byron's in it. We were... We, we did it. Um, but so our youngest really loved the kombucha, but he called it booch. Um, and he would come up, and two or three, I can't remember. He would just come up and say, booch in my cup. He would just hold up a cup and just say, booch in my cup. And that was, his, that was his, him telling us to put some kombucha in there. But it's a sweet picture because he didn't make the kombucha. He didn't buy the ingredients. He didn't buy the cup. He couldn't even put it in the cup himself. Most of the time, he couldn't even drink it without spilling it. But he trusted that we would give him what he asked for. So how can, how can we repay the Lord? This question that the psalmist asked himself in verse 12. Well, we can't, right? The psalmist isn't proposing here a payback plan for God's salvation, a, a spiritual mortgage. He, it isn't a spiritual IOU. He was saying that the death-defined salvation that God has given me, the deliverance that I have come through, demands my life, my soul, my all. But none of that is enough to repay the Lord for what he does. So what, in verse 13, does the man do to pay back the Lord? He simply offers up back to the Lord what the Lord has already done for him. He holds up, Lord, you've already done this. You have given me salvation. More, please. Booch in my cup. Give me more of you. Give me more of what you have already done. And isn't that what we do when we gather, when we worship? We raise a toast to the Lord with empty cups, and we say, Lord, fill it. It's, it's all the Lord's doing. It, it's his cup. It's, he fills it with himself. We simply lift it up. So, the cup, the cup of salvation. I love Memo's slide. It's really given me uh, Last Crusade vibes. So, Memo, you chose wisely. The cup is a, is a common trope in Scripture. Sometimes literal cups, meals, offerings in the Old Testament, we'd see. Uh, feast. Uh, but many times it's metaphorical, especially in the Psalms, for giving and receiving. And I think, hang with me here, this is cool. I think that his connection between cup 
and vows that we see in verse 13 and 14 should point us back, make us think of Leviticus 7. I know you were all thinking that, right? Everybody was like, yeah, Leviticus 7. Um, It's a very different kind of peace offering. It's the only kind of sacrifice and offering where there would be a meal involved that the sacrificers and the offeringers, offerers, uh, would eat together. They would eat part of the sacrifice. It was a meal. So it was a meal back in Leviticus 7. It's a meal here in our psalm. And here tonight we have another meal where we will lift a cup together. This is a resurrection psalm. This is also a Lord's Supper psalm. And I didn't know that when I picked this psalm to preach tonight. Um, I don't, and I don't think I'm making a square peg fitting a round hole here exegetically. This is, a, this is a Lord's Supper psalm. Of course, this man wasn't thinking Lord's Supper, but we look back through the lens of what Christ did with the Passover meal, and we see Lord's Supper here. To lift the cup of salvation is what we do here tonight. In the Old Testament, often the cup was a scary thing. We heard that on Sunday, right? That many times it was a, a picture of carrying wrath. And this is the cup that Jesus would drink. This is the cup that he would ask the Father in the garden to, that if he could... If it could pass from him, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus would drink of that cup, and he would drink it all. Beloved, Jesus emptied that cup of wrath so that it could be filled with salvation, and we could drink and live. In the New Testament, this this cup of salvation gets lifted even higher. In Matthew 26, When Jesus is instituting the supper, he says in verse 27 that he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul carries on that illustration of the cup in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, the the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This cup of salvation is offered freely to all who would take and drink. So take hold of this cup tonight, this cup of salvation through faith in Jesus' blood and righteousness. Taste and see that he is good and sing with us. This psalmist had tasted and seen that the Lord was good, and he doesn't keep it to himself. We see he will pay his vows, starting in verse 14. Verses 14 and 18 are identical. He pay, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So what, what's, what, what's this vow business? What's going on with that? What's he saying? Well, to summarize it, personal deliverance leads to public declaration. When you've been through something and it's serious, you're going to tell people about it right? We, we, we know that. But as the church, as the people of God, salvation leads to singing, leads to proclamation, leads to gathering. We can't keep it to ourselves, and we shouldn't. So what are the vows specifically here for this psalmist? I think we can find them in the psalm itself. We just look back to all the I will statements. I will, I will. I will call 
upon the Lord, like we sang earlier. I will walk before the Lord. I will lift the cup of salvation. These are, these are vows that he's making before the Lord in the presence of all his people. So, church, what vows have you made before the Lord? Well, if you're a Desert Springs Church member, if you're a covenant member, you've signed our covenant of fellowship. And the second paragraph says this. We purpose, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, Lord's Supper and Baptism, discipline, and doctrines. Do you see all the churchy words? Together, church, worship, ordinance, discipline. These are not private vows. These are not secret, uh, these aren't uh, what is it, unspoken prayer requests. These aren't unspoken. These, these are spoken. These are, these are the kind of vows that require an audience. They require somebody to see it, a witness. They require the assembly, the church. So church, remind you that we are witnesses to each other. We are witnesses to each other's vow-keeping. We are responsible to help each other keep our vows before the Lord. Tonight, we'll take the, the, the Lord's Supper together. That's why we do it as a church, because this is not an individualistic thing. It is for the church so that we can look around and see who is the church, who is here, and who is proclaiming his death. This is how we identify with one another. We do this in baptism. Yes, it is the one identifying with the many as he, enter, he or she enters into the church through the waters. But, church, you have a role to witness it, to see it, and to say, all right, it's one of ours now. We're on him. It's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Also, there's a word in here about funerals. So, how do we see funerals? Well, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why would the psalmist put that in this spot and in this psalm? Well, in part, it's because the reality of death emphasizes the preciousness of life. The re reality of darkness emphasizes light. The reality of death emphasizes life. And the psalmist knows that he will die physically one day. But even in death, he will continue to serve the Lord. He will pay his vows in the celestial city. Death doesn't stop the praise of the saints. It turns it up to 11. The death of the saint is precious to the Lord because that saint is precious to the Lord. He delivers us from death temporarily temporarily here in this life until he delivers us through death into eternal life. He delivers us from death. He keeps us alive until he delivers us through death. We don't slip out of the Father's hand passing through death. He carries us through into eternal life. As uh, some missionary said, I can't remember his name, we are immortal until God is done with us. So death, death here is spoken about in a way that 
makes me think it's, it's merely a prelude to the chorus of resurrection. It's like a pre-chorus. And the promise, it's a, it's a pre-chorus to the chorus of resurrection and the promise of the presence of God. Remember 2 Corinthians 4, he raised us into his presence. In Christ, death has no sting and life has no end. And death is not the end for us. It is but one path that we all must take. This is a resurrection psalm. It is a Lord's Supper psalm. It is a funeral psalm. Because Christians look death right in the face. And when death comes for us, inevitably, and for our loved ones, we come together. We come together to grieve and to hope like Christians do. And so in my notes, it just says, funeral rant. So now I'm going to rant about funerals. I'm pro-funeral. That sounds weird. It's not because I'm pro-death. No, I'm pro-funeral because it is the right and appropriate response for Christians to come together corporately to grieve, to remember, to rehearse, and to hope. Not, not as the world does without hope, but we grieve with hope. So, uh, three quick exhortations for you. If you have a loved one who passes away and you have any influence over what happens after, have a funeral. People are less and less inclined to have any kind of gathering because we want to put death in a corner and hide it away because death is ugly and we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to look at it. Christians don't do that. We look at death straight in the face because we know it's been defeated, especially the death of a saint. So have a funeral. Go to funerals. Book of Ecclesiastes talks about the house of mourning being better than the house of celebration. So I've always said a funeral is better than a birthday party. Because a funeral is weighty, significant. We are confronted with our own mortality. We are taught. Take your kids to funerals. Don't hide it from your kids. Let them see. Let them know. It's a, it's a picture of the gospel. All right, f- funeral rant over. He ends this section here with another promise, another vow of public proclamation. And so I'll end tonight with some thoughts and exhortations for us about why we gather and what's happening when we gather. C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms, said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Praise isn't complete until it's shared. That's why we come together. These corporate confessions, these vows, um, and I'll give some specifics here in a minute. Uh, They're not for show. We don't, he's not putting on a show. Okay, I've been delivered. Now I'm going to go put on a show for everybody so everybody sees how I've been delivered. No, he, he wants to do this in part, and we come together in part physically, embodied, incarnate, because it shows the nature of God's salvation. God reconciles individuals, yes, to himself, but he also reconciles us to each other. 
So our gatherings are a picture of even what our reconciliation with God is like. We are reconciled to each other, for each other. I believe in the America, the America, in America, in the West, we have privatized or over-privatized our Christian walk. We think we can get the same depth of spiritual formation and nourishment on our own, in the mountains, online, or with our Bibles at home. The Bible doesn't know anything about that kind of Christianity. God's people in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament never viewed public worship as optional or additional, but foundational for what it meant to be a Christian. I'm going to say something really profound that's going to blow your minds. You can't do public worship by yourself. Just going to let it set in. Can't do it. Doesn't work. You can't do all the things a Christian should do by yourself. And some, some of us, maybe some of you here, think there's no difference. Yes, we do still worship privately. We worship all the time. But public worship is necessary. And something mysterious and glorious happens in corporate worship that does not and cannot happen in private. Listen to David Clarkson. David Clarkson was the, uh, he took over after John Owen, so he's been around for a while. The Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. So every Christian. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then these several streams are united to meet in one. So that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private is but a stream, in public becomes a river. A river that makes glad the city of God. Church, that's what we do when we gather. We bring all our little streams together. Don't think Ghostbusters. This is a good, this is a good crossing of the streams. We bring our streams together and it turns into a river. We can't do that on our own. We can't experience that on our own. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're here on a Wednesday night. You're here consistently. So can, can we talk? Let's talk. It's just us. Um, so the elders need your help. Look around the room. Look at the empty seats. We have 550 members in our church right now. Um, there's probably 250 people here right now, if I was guessing. Um, so there's a lot of empty seats at the table. And you know the benefit that it is to be here because you're here all the time. You're here every time. So think of ways. Help the elders. Help our church grow in seeing the importance of a gathering of Sundays and Lord's Suppers. Tell them why you're here. Give testimony. This isn't uh, to make anyone feel guilty for missing. People are providentially hindered. But to lay out before them the blessing that it is to bring your little stream in here to make a river. All right, we've got to talk about this word pay. I will pay, I will pay, I will pay my vows. Uh, other translations translate it to perform. Perform in my world of church music is a naughty word. It's a bad word. You can't say it, you can't use it. We don't perform, right? It's not a performance, not a performer. Um, I've, I've been pushing back against that in recent years, 
um, because you can't get away from the fact that performance is happening. Um, I sing and play. Luke was singing and playing and Gwen and Lindsay. They're, they're, they're performing. They're performing a service, an act of love, an act of leading. Think of it more like a surgeon performing surgery, like our brother Pat had just hours ago. We don't think, oh, that surgeon's really just trying to show off. No, he's, he's trying to save Pat's life. He's doing something essential. Let's talk about that kind of performing. So I believe that's the kind of performing he's talking about here. Listen, church, we perform for each other. We're performing here tonight for one another. We are paying our vows, performing our vows in the presence of each other. We could just, everybody go home and take your little cup of juice and bread and get alone with God and do your thing. No, we are doing it together, and we do it together for a reason. God doesn't need your singing. God doesn't need your worship. I do. I need to hear you sing. You need to hear each other sing. Not, not because it affirms me. No, because it encourages me. It blesses me. It spurs me on. Here's, here's a performance I'll give you. A suffering saint among you. Someone you look around and you know they are going through hell on earth. Physical suffering. They've lost a loved one. When that suffering saint comes into the gathering and sings out in faith, that's a performance. And that's a performance I'm here for. And it encourages my faith. And I need to see it. And you need to see it. And you need to hear it. And suffering saints, thank you. We need your voice. We need to hear it in the gathering, in the presence of all the people. So look around. I love that Ryan had you guys do that on Sunday. I know if you ever see me not leading, I'm about 50% of the time I'm looking around when I'm sitting in the seats um, because I think it's weird for me to just face forward the whole time. I've got to look around and make sure you guys are still there because <laughs> I'd feel weird if I just turned around and the room was empty. I mean, I'd still keep singing, but it really helps that you're there. It's been so nice to have all this lighting in here in the equipping hall. You know, we've intentionally put more lighting, better lighting in the new auditorium so we can see each other better, so you can see your Bibles, but also so we can see each other. So we are going to light up that room with literal light and with each other, with seeing each other. We engage with each other when we engage with God. I read this on Twitter, and I can't remember who said it, but I love it. Corporate worship puts flesh on the command to love your neighbor. What neighbor? This neighbor. These neighbors. That's who you're to love. And in part, you love through paying your vow, through performing your vow of corporate worship together for each other, with each other. A warning. If you're a Christian that is not in regular fellowship through public worship and not regularly observing the Lord's Supper, you are spiritually malnourished and you are in danger. You're in danger of disobeying Christ, his command to do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this. It's the, taking the Lord's Supper is a command. So if you are physically able, and we do have, heads up, the, the building knows that we're about out of here. It knows. It's just like, nah, we're done. We're done here. Almost. We're almost over there. Hang on. 
right in the middle of the most serious part of my sermon. I just had to fall down. If you're able to gather and you don't, and we do have a group of people that are physically unable to gather, you know that, right? We have, sh- we have shut-ins. We have people that physically cannot be here, and we know them by name. Many of you know them by name. The Lord knows them, and he gives them a special provision of grace for this season of their life. But you're not them. If you're physically able to be here and you don't, you are putting yourself in spiritual danger if you consistently neglect the gathering. How are you keeping the vow of Hebrews 10.25 to not forsake the gathering, the assembling of yourself? How do you keep that? How do you keep the vow or the command to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Do you hear me say that when we're doing a song of prep for the 12 of you that are here on time? Um, we start early. We start early. Okay, so we've been doing this song of prep to, to, so you uh, get in the room. We're like, come on now. It's the get in your seat song. But I often say, let's address one another with this song. So we're kind of singing to each other as we come in. That's, that's, that's Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. How, how are you doing that if you're not gathering regularly? You can't do that by yourself. How do you proclaim the Lord's death through the Lord's Supper if you're not regularly gathering when we do this? So church, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good vow-keeping, good public vow-performing. Let's consider it. Let's consider how to testify together, like this psalmist in Psalm 116. And remember again that when we were surrounded, encompassed by death, our God heard our cry. He delivered us. Delivered us from death to publicly proclaim His salvation and walk before the Lord together, both now and forever, and in the new Jerusalem. This is our story. This is our psalm. A saved soul is a sharing soul. We are a gathering of saved souls. What happens to the soul affects the body. A saved soul is a singing soul. And what does a saved soul sound like? It's starting to sound like Dr. Seuss. Should have read this out loud before I got up here. What does a saved soul sound like? I'm going to pray, and then we'll find out together. Let's pray. You, my God, have saved my soul, and you have saved the souls of so many in this room. Would you save more today? Cause them to cry out now, maybe for the first time, that you would deliver their souls. And cause this collection of saved souls to burst out with loud songs of praise as we retell of your gracious deliverance from sin and death. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.